I have something very special to show you this morning. This is a letter from the Alaska State Legislature, complete with the seal of the state of Alaska on it and the signature of the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate right on it. I want to tell you how this came to be in my possession. Uh, In fourth grade, I was on our school's Battle of the Books team. I don't think you have Battle of the Books here, so I've got to explain what that is briefly. Uh, Battle of the Books is a a statewide competition, so note that statewide competition is kind of a big deal, uh, where a a group of students will will read a book, uh, a selection of books, about ten books, and then they will compete one-on-one with other schools in the area and eventually across the state uh, to see who can answer more questions about the content and, and character development and plot of those books. So that's what Battle of the Books is. And I was on our school's third and fourth grade team for Battle of the Books. Now, I came from a very small school. There were about 20 people in each class. And our school was not known for its uh, athletic prowess, I guess we should say. Um, We had very poor records every single year when it came to sports. So the only thing we knew about competing with other schools is that we were going to lose. Maybe we'd win one or two games in a season. So you can imagine that a school like this does not have a lot of kind of self-esteem when it comes to entering the competition. But this Battle of the Books team was pretty good. I was in fourth grade, so I was one of the seasoned veterans on this team. I'd been through Battle of the Books in third grade, and we had a couple uh, up-and-coming third graders who kind of knew their stuff, too. So this was a special team. And we uh, entered this competition, and we started to kind of win a few early rounds. And the teachers and the administrators started to understand that something special was happening here. So this this became something of a school-wide event. I mean, it, uh, Battle of the Books takes place, at least in Alaska, through teleconference. So I still remember the four of us sitting there at a little table in the library with a little telephone there. And uh, the whole uh, school, the whole elementary school, filed into the library and quietly found a place on the floor. So it was a packed house in this library as we uh, quietly dominated the competition. And, you know, it's one thing to sort of beat the schools that are around you. Some of the schools are, are even smaller than our schools. So, you know, that's that's one thing. But... Then we started taking on schools from bigger places like Fairbanks and, and Juneau and Anchorage. And, and each time we expected that we'd probably lose. I mean, we're a small school. We don't expect to be able to beat city schools. I mean, they have a lot of students. They've got to be better than us, right? But over time, we won that whole competition. And so this is a letter from the Alaska State Legislature saying that Glen Allen Elementary School, this tiny little school, was state champions for Battle of the Books. And you can imagine that in a school like that where you never win anything. Yes, thank you. <laughs> you can imagine that in a school like that where you're not used to winning anything, the four of us on this team were so proud of this accomplishment. And even more proud when we were sitting in class and they handed us these official-looking letters with the seal and the embossed little sticker down here and the signatures, and, and we all got them framed like this one. And we are very proud of this, Right? But I have a confession to make. I was on this team as an alternate. (laughs) That means that as the four of us were sitting at a table, a question would come in and the three of them would deliberate while I sat there quietly thinking, please get the right answer, please get the right answer. (laughs) 
I still remember one answer that they got wrong that I knew the right answer to. So, you know, 15 years later, I still know that the answer to that question was The Fantastic Mr. Fox by Roald Dahl, and they just didn't get it. So I, I could have been a help to that team, but the reality is that I contributed nothing to this team's success. So here's my question for you. I want you to judge this for me. Is it right for me to go around carrying this around and bragging about being a state champion in Battle of the Books? Is it right for me to do that? <laughs> now, now, I'm not asking like if it's if it's a good idea as far as my coolness goes, if I should start talking about this. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, yeah, it's not a good idea to do that. It might be you, you were on the team, so maybe you can say it, but I mean, you're just going to show how much of a nerd you were in elementary school. So, you know, it's not like it's a basketball championship or something like that. Well, it's technically true that I was on this team. I mean, my name is right here at the bottom, Gary John Ridley. But I didn't do anything to help this team win this championship. The people that deserve credit for that were people like Brad Calloway and Gunnar Tope and, most significantly, the top name on the list, Emily Bauer, who now goes by Emily Bauer Ridley, my <laughs> own wife. <laughs> You didn't know that we were on a team, you know, 16 years before she agreed to marry me. We were on this team together. <laughs> but for me to brag about being a state champion battle of the books person would be to undermine the reality that these three other people were the ones who earned that championship, right? So yes, I'm technically on the team, but someone else has done all the work. For me to brag about that undermines their accomplishment. It undermines those who have actually earned the title themselves, done the hard work. Okay, so Paul has told us in Romans 3 that everyone who puts their faith in Jesus is declared righteous by God. That means that those who have put their faith in Jesus, those who are Christians, are in a right relationship with God. The, the Bible says these people are, are God's special possession. They're a holy nation. They're a royal priesthood. And so we think we as Christians, those who have put their faith in Christ, are in a, a place of privilege, right? And so we think, well, that means that we are in a position that we can go bragging about this position, right? Isn't that the logical conclusion? Yes, we are in a privileged position. We are God's chosen people, his holy priesthood now as Christians because we've put our faith in Jesus. But the truth is that we haven't contributed anything to our standing before God. We have no room for boasting because like an alternate on a state championship battle of the books team, someone else has done all the work. Someone else has earned this status that you now enjoy. We have nothing to brag about because God has done everything for us. We are justified. You and I are justified because of what God has done, not because of what we have done. God doesn't justify us based on works of the law or the, the kind of good things that we suppose that we do. God doesn't justify us by what we do, but because of what he has done in Christ on our behalf. So this morning we're in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 to 31. Uh, Mike read that this morning. If you haven't yet turned there in your Bibles, I invite you to do so now. You'll want to have that in front of you. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, this is found on page 1115. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 to 31. 
Now, specifically, we're going to see this morning why it's actually a good thing that we're not able to brag about this salvation that we have in Christ. We're going to see why it's a good thing that we are justified by faith in Jesus and not by works that we do. So the big idea this morning is that we are made right with God by faith, not by works. And that truth that we are made right or justified by God through faith and not works that's going to teach us two important truths this morning. The first truth that teaches us is that it means it's not our doing. It's not your doing, and it's not my doing. Let's turn to the text this morning. Paul starts off our section with a question. Verse 27. Where then is boasting? Where then is boasting? Okay, The first or second word here is then or therefore, depending on your translation. That means that we can't answer this question unless we understand what then or therefore is therefore. So we have to look back in the preceding argument to to be able to understand this question. So let's take a brief look back. The uh, argument so far is well summarized by Paul in in the previous uh, paragraph there. Look at verses 22 to 24 of chapter 3. Paul is saying that righteousness is given through faith in Jesus, and it has to be given through faith in Jesus because every single person has sinned. We are all sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. So if our righteousness depended upon us being sinless, there would be no righteousness. Our righteousness is through faith in Jesus because everyone has sinned. Now, justification or this declaration of righteousness is a, is a very important foundational concept this morning. You're going to have to understand something of what that means. And we talked about that last week in terms of a courtroom imagery. I want to just briefly remind you of that. You are a defendant. You are on trial. The case is being made against you. The case is successfully being made against you. You are guilty, and you are waiting to hear your sentence Justified or justification means that God decides in your favor because of Jesus Christ. So justification is God's declaration that as you are standing there on the defendant stand, you are declared righteous, innocent. You are acquitted of your guilt. And this justification comes freely, Paul says, by God's grace because of the life and death of Jesus. In short, justification comes only from God through faith in Jesus. So with me so far? More or less? And it's only from this that we're able to then be in a position to answer Paul's question. So we'll let him answer it for us. Verse 27 again. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. Paul's answer should not surprise us here. There is no room for bragging or boasting because God is the one who declares righteous and we are not righteous because of what we have done. That's already been clear from the preceding paragraph. But what what this verse in particular adds further clarity on is how we receive God's righteousness. There are basically two options. We can be righteous by the, the law of works or we can be righteous by the law of faith. This reference to the language of of law shows that Paul has a particular concern here for the Jewish people. They have received God's law through Moses, and Paul wants them to understand how this righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus relates to that concept of law. 
So let's consider the two options he gives us, either righteous by the law of works or righteous by the law of faith. The law of works means that you have to do enough things or do the right things so that you become righteous. You are a righteous person then. So if righteousness depends on works of the law, those who actually have the law are in a position of superiority, right? They at least know what is required of them to become righteous. So if they're going to become righteous, they've got to do what it says in the law. This is the law of works. But you can imagine then that the Jewish people who actually have the law can become proud of their possession of the law. They actually at least have a starting point for attaining righteousness. And then as they begin to have some success in following what the law says, you can imagine the the natural progression then is that they have some sort of sense of superiority about their own ability to do righteous things, especially when they look at someone else, someone who maybe doesn't have the law, and they think, well, I'm doing more of the law, more righteous things than that other person, which means that I am more righteous than that other person. So the law of works allows for some boasting or bragging. I am better than you over there. Or you over there. I don't want to sort of call you guys out in particular here. But the problem is that Paul has already undermined that sense of pride in chapter 2. He has said that some people who don't even have possession of the physical law, they don't even have the principles of the law before them, still do the law better than some people who actually have God's law written by through Moses. So that throws away any supposed superiority that those people might have had. And the conclusive thing comes down to the previous chapter, uh, paragraph here, 323. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned. And further, the, the Old Testament law itself makes it clear that no single person is righteous. This isn't about kind of a sliding scale where I'm comparing myself in righteousness to someone else. This is about God's righteousness. And I can never say I am righteous fully. Even the law itself, as Paul has this long list of quotations in in chapter 3, starting in verse 10, this long list of Old Testament quotations says, you are not righteous. In sum, anyone who thinks that they are righteous based on works of the law is deluding themselves. They have misunderstood the law. Rather than being righteous, those who believe in sort of the law of works, that they can do enough thing to attain righteousness, they are in peril because they are sinners. If it were true that humans were justified by works, by things they do, by works of the law, then we would all be in a bad position. We'd have no hope. Yes, theoretically we could boast, and I suppose that's the theoretical upside to it, but in reality, none of us can attain that righteousness, and so we would all be condemned. And that's the dilemma that Paul is trying to answer here. If God's declaration of our righteousness depends on the law of works, or works of the law, both terms are used in 27 and 28, if God's declaration of our righteousness depends on works of the law, then we are all damned to hell because it's simply impossible. And that courtroom image from last week where we are standing there in a defense box and we are declared righteous by God, that courtroom image ends very differently because rather than being declared righteous by God, rather than God declaring in our favor, we are standing there without hope and we will be declared unrighteous, condemned, guilty, And that's why justification by faith, this gospel message that Paul has been proclaiming, is such good news for us. 
The gospel of justification by faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, tells us that God's declaration of our righteousness is based on faith, not works. It's based on faith in Jesus Christ. I suppose if there's a downside, it means we can't brag. I mean, Paul has already said that in verse 27, but obviously the upside is much more important than that. It's saying that it is actually possible for us to receive that verdict by God. It's possible for God to find in our favor, to declare us righteous. Because it's by faith, it's not by works. If it were by works, all of us would be hopeless. But it is by faith in Jesus, because of what God has done. And therefore we have hope. So here is the truth as Paul puts it in verse 28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It means very simply put, God justifies you by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law, not by things you do. If justification depended on what we do, there would be no hope for us at all. And yet the truth is that we are justified. God does find in our favor. He declares us righteous because we are righteous through faith in Jesus. It is because of what God has done on our behalf in Jesus Christ that we have hope. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to justification by faith? Last week we explored the slave imagery behind the word redemption as we looked at 324. And I want to return to that to understand our options for understanding how to deal with justification by faith. Redemption means that in Christ we are freed from being slaves to sin. Those who are slaves can be redeemed or someone pays the price for their freedom. That's what redemption means. So put yourself back in that position as a slave. You are a slave, you were born a slave, your parents were born slaves, they died slaves, you have no hope of ever attaining your freedom. When suddenly you are told that someone has paid the price of your freedom, they say you have been redeemed, you are now free. You have three possible responses. Your first option would be to simply refuse to believe that you've actually been redeemed. You think, well, I I don't believe you. You're just playing games with me. It can't be true that I'm actually free from slavery. I've only known the life of a slave, and so I'm going to continue being a slave. The second response would be to accept the freedom, to go and take your freedom, but then to start bragging about the freedom that you have earned. Because your thinking goes something like this. Well, I have been redeemed. Someone else paid the price of my slavery They must have paid that price because they saw how good of a person I really am. They must have seen something in me, potential or or character or something good. I am more deserving of freedom than someone else. I have been redeemed because of who I am. And so that person accepts their freedom, and then they go around as if they have earned their own freedom. They've done it on their own. The third option, of course, is the only right response. It is to accept the redemption you have been given, accept the freedom you have been given, and to tell everyone who will listen the great gift that your Redeemer has given you. See, the first response is, is hopeless. You're still a slave. You're always going to be a slave. The second response directs praise at yourself. 
And it's only the third response that directs praise and honor and glory to your Redeemer. You and I are justified by faith. This is God's work. And as a result, all praise and honor and glory must go to God. It's very easy for us to subtly start thinking that we have done something to contribute to our salvation. We hear the the hard call to discipleship, the the hard call of obedience in the Bible, and, and we start confusing that with God's gracious embrace in Christ. We start to think that it, it is our obedience that affects God's salvation. When in truth, it is the inverse of that. It is God's salvation that affects our obedience. God has done everything, and therefore, God is the one who gets all glory for this. And that means, of course, that you and I need to stop pretending that we can earn our own way. It's only when we come to the end of our resources, realizing that we cannot do it on our own, that we are able to understand why Jesus came to die for us. Our only response is faith. The response to the gospel is faith. Faith is putting complete dependence upon God, recognizing that I am a creation, I am a creature, and God is my only source of hope. He has done everything for me. Faith is recognizing that I have no possibility of bragging because I have done nothing. God has done everything for me. And in truth, this is actually a very freeing realization. See, if justification depends upon what I do, then when I gather with a group of Christians like this, I have to make it look like I'm perfect. If justification is based on works, then I always, even though I'm imperfect and I know I'm imperfect, maybe you don't know I'm imperfect, so I have to put up some sort of facade of perfection. I cannot let my weaknesses be known, especially in a community of believers. That were if justification were by works. But justification is by faith. And that means that as we gather as a Christian community, we don't have to put up the front of perfection. We are able to come in our imperfection, in the filth of our lives, and say, praise God that he justifies even me. Church is not the community of those who come to brag about what they have done, to brag about how perfect they are becoming. Church is the community of those who have received God's grace by faith, which means that church is where we meet in our brokenness. We meet in our perfection. And as a result of seeing the perfection of others and recognizing our own imperfection, we are able to marvel at God's grace and say, God's grace is sufficient even for you? God's grace is enough even for me? And then together, We can praise our God and we can find healing and wholeness in Christ. And it is only from this point that we are able to undertake, truly undertake our mission. From here, we can point others to God's work because this isn't saying, look what I have done. This is saying, look what God has done. As the community of those who were in slavery, who have been freed, we are in a remarkable position to be able to proclaim freedom to other slaves. This is where freedom is found. 
we have the message of hope. I don't know if you know this, but there are hundreds of families within five or ten miles of our church that are broken and hurting. Go talk to one of the, the teachers who has to spend all day in the schools to find out the stories that they hear from the kids. There are many hard, hard situations. Go talk to some of the counselors here. Find out what they hear about the hurting people in our community. This is not a community of those who are perfect. And the truth is that we are right there with them. None of us is inherently better than anyone else. The gospel is the message of grace. We receive it by faith. The gospel is what we receive by faith. It's not what we earn by works. It's not the law of works. It's the law of faith. The difference between those who do not have hope and those who do have hope is God's work. It is God's work teaching us and showing us that he is freeing slaves, that he is redeeming the world, starting here, one person at a time, freeing them from this slavery to sin, giving them the possibility of a new life. This is the gospel. This is what changes us. And this is what allows us and empowers us to go into our community and proclaim the message of God's grace. It is not what we have done. It is what God has done. Justification by faith means that it is not your doing and it is not my doing. And this is good news because in our most insightful moments, you know that you can never fix your own brokenness. The source of healing is God's work. If it were up to us, it would be impossible. But praise God, by His grace, we are able to receive His healing through our faith in Jesus Christ. God's work is our sure hope. Justification by faith means that it is God's doing. The second truth flows from this. The second truth is that justification by faith means that this message is available to everyone. Everyone is able to be justified. Everyone is able to be made right with God. Everyone is able to receive God's healing people of Paul's day needed to hear that they are justified by faith, not by their works. That means that they aren't justified by what they have done. They are justified by what God has done for them in Christ. Because of this, there's no room for bragging. But there's another key point to be made, and Paul makes that in verses 29 to 30. Look at the text again. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. See, Jews believed very strongly in one true God. All other supposed deities were just human-made idols. There is no true God except Yahweh, the one God. And Paul's going to use this core belief to show how justification by faith is the only thing that makes sense. If there is only one God, and there is only one God, that means that everyone has the same God. There's not one God for the Jews, another God for the Gentiles, and maybe a third God for anyone who rejects those gods. All people must relate to the same God. 
if relating to the one true God depended upon the law of works, upon doing things, then those who have the law, the, the law of Moses, are in a position of privilege. And those who are not Jews are excluded from being able to relate rightly to God. But Paul has just said in verse 28 that God justifies people by faith, not by works of the law. And now he's going to reiterate that point specifically in regard to Jews and Gentiles. He's saying Jews are justified by faith. Gentiles are justified by faith. It's the same faith that justifies everyone. God justifies us all by faith, not by works. The important truth here is that God justifies all people by faith. That's what we learned in the first part. And because of that, it is possible for all people to be justified. That first point in verses 27 and 28 showed that justification by faith was the only way for us to have any hope because it's impossible for us to attain righteousness by works of the law. And this second point now is showing us that justification by faith opens up this possibility to everyone. Not only is being right with God possible, it is possible for everyone, for all of us. And it is only from this understanding that the Old Testament law can be rightly understood. Look at verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. See, this is important because some people might have gotten the impression that Paul was totally doing away with the Old Testament law. And indeed, some people today even think that that's true. He's saying that this is the law of faith, not the law of works, and therefore maybe the law of Moses is completely gone. But Paul is indicating that his teaching, this law of faith, is the only way to faithfully understand the Old Testament. The only right response to the law of Moses is faith. It's putting complete dependence upon God. And that is the exact same response that the gospel of Jesus Christ demands. Faith. Complete dependence upon God. The all of salvation history, Old Testament and New Testament, is pointing toward the work of God. It is all fundamentally about God's work to redeem us. And all of salvation history demands the same response from humans. Faith. Complete dependence upon God. Paul is going to reiterate this point through Abraham, the the father of the Jewish people, in chapter 4 as we look at that next week. But for now, this is what I want us to see together. When we understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about the work of God on our behalf through Jesus Christ and that we can add nothing to God's grace, then... God gets all the glory. And that is the result that we want. God to get all glory. Attention is directed away from us and is directed toward our God. The only right way to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ is to put your faith in God himself. This is about God's work on your behalf. The only right response is faith. And that removes any possibility of bragging. And it further highlights God's glory. And it is from that standpoint that we are able to go and proclaim the gospel in our community. Because it's not a message about us. It's a message about God and what he has done. 
The message that God declares humans righteous is not a message that's just for the good religious people, wherever they might be. The truth is that there is no such thing as good religious people. The message of God's righteousness that is received by faith in Jesus Christ is a message for those who are broken, who are hurting, who are imperfect, who need to be healed by God. And that means that this is a message for us. It is the message that God has made you free because he loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you and for others who deserved to spend eternity in hell because of your rebellion against God. But God loves you so much that he sent his son to give you life. And so we come to the ultimate antidote to boasting or bragging about what we have in Christ. The ultimate antidote to bragging is the cross of Jesus Christ. If there is any way for me to earn my own salvation, then there is no reason for Jesus to die on a cross. The cross teaches us the truth of this passage and moves us to respond rightly. You have no hope outside of the work of God for you. And yet you have all the hope in the world because God has acted on your behalf. His son has died for you and you now have life. So put your faith in him. Put all of your trust, put your complete dependence upon God. He is your life. Please pray with me. God, we are so tempted to think that we can do it. It's so hard for us to actually believe that it's by faith that you save us. And yet that's our only hope. And so this morning we praise you that it's not because of what we have done. It's because of what you have done on our behalf. We thank you for your grace. Pray that you'd give us the faith to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.